You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always, you know, it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches with coaches singles and, and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and and I think happier uh happier life. But there's there's certain things that have to be there. And and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, And we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school. Or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got you've to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us, uh, and especially... And we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back, and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know, and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an age group and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. 
and you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29 – You'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage, but the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between twenty two and twenty five. And again, if you're planning on if you're twenty seven by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be you know out of the market, out of the game. So. There's something going on, obviously, because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they they're, they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get, just wait. Wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. (laughs) You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. If your kids see that you hate marriage that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that that people have become more unhealthily um, attached So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to in, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not 
into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro marriage. You actually you, you don't want to marry a, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage, and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's gonna. You're probably gonna slow down your path. So parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. <laughs> and they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. we got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But- <laughs> Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work, 
better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, Thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex. Less sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are, uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43 percent said that of the singles um, – Women who were ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion 
to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever gone to the grocery store and then you see the price of the vegetables and you're thinking, what? You want me to eat better, but you don't want to make it affordable? So is the idea that eating healthy is really more expensive, is that a real Is that a real concept? Or is that something we just make up so we could eat, you know, junk food? Eating healthy is an essential part of an effort to become healthier, right, or to lose weight. And according to a study by the Produce for Better Health Foundation, after a brief rise through 2009, per capita fruit and vegetable consumption has declined 7% over the last five years. This has been driven primarily by decreased consumption of vegetables by 7% and fruit juice by 14%. So... You know, it also uh, may be because prices for healthy foods are on the rise. According to a study by the Overseas Development Institute, prices for healthier foods have been rising. Our guest today is Margaret Marshall, wellness consultant, and she joins us today to talk about her article that we read in the Huffington Post, Is Eating Healthy Really More Expensive? She joins us now live from New York to help us answer that question. Margaret Marshall, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Thrilled to be with you today, Matt. You too. Great to have you. I mean, this we all complain, you know, about uh, like vegetables being too expensive and we're not eating them enough. But is that true? Is healthier food really more expensive? You know, you had just read the uh, study that you saw and that is mind-boggling, really. I don't know I, I, I don't know if you said that was from 2009 or since 2009. Yeah, I think so since my, 2009. 5 so my, Yeah. Go ahead. No, I just since, since about probably uh, uh through 2009 and then at, from 2009 on are, are when those numbers came out. It's dropping. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Um that's pretty sad. No, totally. That's pretty sad. So if people are not buying fresh produce, where are they spending their money? You know, that's, I think, what every shopper and family has to ask themselves. What's in my shopping cart? Where's my money going? And is it being well spent on the health of myself and my family? And, you know, it's it's funny. I had written this article for Huffington Post right after I had done a seminar. And once again, I heard someone from a seminar or you know, say, have you seen the price of lettuce lately? Or have you, you know, the price of bananas is so high. And I always say, when people say that to me, what's the, what's the price tag on your favorite box of cookies? And right. they never have an answer. <laughs> never look. Yeah. They never look. And, and I find that, and in that moment, that's a reality check for them because they'll complain about the price of of uh, fresh produce because if it's not seasonal, what they're buying is not seasonal, but they'll continue to buy boxes of food that has no nutritional value in it whatsoever. The price on that continues to rise, and not only is the price rising on those foods, the quantity in the boxes are getting smaller and smaller. So, you know, they're just not thinking things through clearly. That's what your article does, is it answers 
I mean, what's the cost, sure, of, of everything else you're doing? And, I mean, it all adds up one way or another. You're going to spend money either in the doctor's office or at Weight Watchers or, you know, in the produce section. Right. <laughs> Where are you going to spend it? Right. That's correct. And, and, and what's really better for you? You know, if you, if you feed your body with food that is going to give it the nutrients it needs and the vitamins it needs and give you the energy you need and the stamina to live a healthy lifestyle, well, then you're not going to be spending money at, as much money in the doctor's office and at pharmacies and in weight loss programs, which is a $60 billion industry. Wow. So explain that. Right. You know, explain why the weight loss field is a $60 billion industry and people are worried about their lettuce being a dollar higher than it was last week. Is... It seems like it's an excuse, right? And I mean, like I know with me, if the vegetables are there and they're in front of me, and I'll eat them. It's but my idea is, then I hear about McDonald's trying to do some garlic fries, and I think, well, I got to drive out of my way to get those. Is it's, that right? It's it's this idea though uh, that I guess we're lazy. Is it lazy? If you're driving out of your way no. to get something, is it lazy? No, yeah, no, it's, or is it habit? I'm mo- or motivated, right? I'm more motivated to oh, go okay. try something than I am to to actually go. But I, I'll sit there and watch on Facebook. Somebody, I don't even know how it's in my feed, but I'll watch people cutting up vegetables and making vegetables look so beautiful in this meal. And I'm like, yeah, I should do that. And then I just and, flip and go to the next one. <laughs> and And what stops you? It, well, I guess what stops me in the end is I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, I don't know. Okay. Even just going, my wife will say, can you go pick out some tomatoes? And I get to the produce section and I'm like, I don't know how to judge a tomato. It's I feel awkward. So, really? Yeah. I if that's true for many people, I, I, you know, that very well could be. And again, it's all what you're accustomed to. Hmm. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I, I don't know about the the um, garlic fries. I don't even know about them. I don't. I'll, I'll let you know when I try them. They're not on my radar screen. Let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, but when many people who eat sugary items, processed sugary items like cake and candy and ice cream, they find that fruit really has no taste because it's not as sweet as what they're accustomed to having. But once you realize that you cut out all that processed food, fruit has a fantastic taste. It's sweet enough, and the taste like will burst in your mouth. The flavor will burst in your mouth. But that's not going to happen if you're eating all that artificial sweetener or processed sugars. So the patterns are, are a big part of this. We have to look at our, our eating patterns because if I am overloading myself with sugar, I mean, and, I mean, if I'm drinking sugar all day, just oh all of a sudden, yeah, how could a how could a cherry taste distinct and special if you've been drinking cherry Coke all day? Right, right, right. How do you compare it? It all goes back to your patterns and your habits. You know, I'm just thinking also what you just said about going and picking out tomatoes and not knowing um, how to do that. I just had company about a week or so ago, and I entertain often, but I was making this recipe with avocados. And truthfully, I never bought an avocado in my life, hmm. even though I know how good they are for you. Yeah. It was just never in my pattern. So I went to buy this avocado, and I cut it up, and it was so easy <laughs> to do and tasted so delicious. 
But I said, why haven't I been doing this all along? Yeah. So now avocados is part of my weekly grocery shopping list. And well, so, I, don't you think, Margaret? A lot of people, um, and we do it, where you get in this idea, this 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 moment in your head where you're like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. And we're going to buy vegetables, and you buy the vegetables, and you don't, and we end up just seeing them disintegrating in our fridge. Um, it's we. It's almost like we're motivated to do it, and then either maybe we don't know what we're doing, but it's as easy as that. You just have to almost force yourself to go get an avocado and ask the produce guy or gal how how you pick up how you pick one, and then I mean by the way, Google it. You can Google every one of these things, and and just try stuff. It just like you're saying, change the pattern. Change the pattern. Um, you know, it's interesting. I have I have a story like that in my book, and. I know you saw my Huffington Post on this, but I have almost 60 Huffington Posts out there, so I hope you read them all. By the way, and what, what's the best – do you have a website where we can go – I do have a website. It's margaretmarshallassociates.com. Right. And Marshall has two L's. It's, it's time for me to update my website, but all of my Huffington Posts are on there. Um, but my, my thinking was I have, I have one Huffington Post. I cannot off the top of my head remember what I titled it, but the story is also in my book or this – theme is also in my book, Body, Mind, and Mouth, that people buy fresh produce when they go grocery shopping with the best of intentions. Mm. But they also buy the cake and the cookies and the candies at the same time. So when they bring everything home at the end of the week, what have they eaten and what's getting thrown out? Yeah, all the cake's gone. Mm, the cookies cake, are the gone. gone. The sugar cereal's gone. The, the, you know, drinks sugary drinks gone because once you start eating sugar that's all you want you want more and more sugar you know that's true so for people who are throwing out their produce and i have a whole huffington post on this idea but of course i can't remember the title of it people who are throwing out their fresh produce at the end of the week they're either buying too much with good intentions no sure doubt, or they're eating food that is not nourishing them, and they're just eating too much of that, and they never get to the fresh produce because they have that that taste in their mouth of of sugar or fat, and they, you want to keep going for that once you start eating that. Well, and let's let and we'll we'll get to that because talk about cost, talk about expensive. If you're eating a bunch of food that doesn't actually nourish you and doesn't make you feel better, and um, that's that's not healthy, then you're going to end up having to buy a lot more of it. So we're, we we'll come back, Margaret, and I want your your tips and some of your your ideas and and ways to you know eat healthy and still you know make it affordable for a family for for just any of us. Where again, we're speaking with Margaret Marshall. If you go to her website, MargaretMarshallAssociates.com, a wonderful resource there to. Um, to go through all of her articles from Huffington Post and her media and her and her blog, all of her information she's got, plus to to get a better look at her book as well. Um, we are going to continue this discussion on the other side of the break. Stick with us when we come back. How to uh, eat a healthy diet affordably? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you are going to use the the cost of produce is too expensive as the excuse for why you're not eating produce, 
then man, have we got a guest for you. Uh, Margaret uh, Marshall joins us, and uh, she is a uh, a writer, an author, and has been actually, um, she's written many, many articles for Huffington Post, and she, she wrote one about eating healthy. Is it really more expensive? And that's what caught our attention, because we hear the excuse, I use the excuse, I, I don't use that excuse for why I, I don't eat vegetables. I, I don't eat vegetables because I'm lazy and because um, uh, all of the other wonderful cakes and cookies that I eat are way better to my palate. The problem is it's not about the money because you're spending money in a variety of different ways. It's about your patterns and it's about um, it's about some other choice making that uh, Margaret is going to be teaching us now. Margaret Marshall, welcome back to the show. Hi, Matt. Good to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. And uh, your book, Body, Mind, and Mouth, Life's Eating Connection, um, that, I guess they could find that anywhere, huh? They can find that anywhere. Uh, they can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's on the shelves. It's in libraries. I also have a new book coming out in June. Mm, what's it called? Yeah, the title of that is Healthy Living Means Living Healthy. And it's all about how you are in control of your healthy living. Yeah, so it's a it, that that is a uh, that's like empowering, right? I'm in charge of my own decisions. I'm in charge of how much I eat, and I'm in charge of what I buy and if I consume it. Right, and if that's not working for you, this book will help you change it in, in, in a multitude of ways. Whether it's a holiday or family or stress, you know, it, it, it's all categorized with different ideas for you for different challenges that you come up with throughout the year. Great. Talk to us about uh, some tips. What are some things that we could do to find cost-efficient, healthy foods? Well, the first thing, and this is what I always tell my clients to do, and, and I ask them to practice it yearly, is to shop for what's seasonal. First of all, if you're going to buy fresh produce that's seasonable in your area, it, it's going to be more cost-effective for you. It's not going to be as costly, and it's going to have more nutrients in it because the longer a fresh item has to travel to your grocer's shelf, the less nutrients it will have in it. So, like, I live in New York. You know, I wouldn't buy watermelon in, in the winter, although the grocery stores have it. It's not as tasty, and uh, it costs it's very expensive. But there are other fruits that I would buy in the winter. And the same is true with the summer. You know, I'd buy fruits in the summer. I'd certainly buy watermelon in the summer. But um, depending on where you live, look for what's local. And, again, you mentioned Google. I always have my clients Google what is local in their area and then go for that food, uh, fresh produce for that. They have a lot of farmer's markets. There's just local things. I mean, I'm assuming that's a great thing just get now, to your farmers market farmers markets will always be first of all the, the best tasting fruit that you can get and here on long island we certainly have farms out on the east end of long island with farm stands all over the place and that is the best in my opinion the best uh, produce we can get i can't always get there so i do have to rely on on grocery stores um, but if you have that in in where you're living Ideal. That's just ideal. It seems like you have to almost broaden your palate a little bit because if all all your kids will eat are strawberries, then, yeah, you're going to pay a lot of money. Well, you know, it's really funny, Matt, because you keep bringing these items up. I have another another Huffington Post uh, that I wrote a long time ago is How to Satisfy Your Picky Eater. And one of the things I wrote in there is, you know, your kids are picky mainly because of what you're doing. Hmm. So always 
notice what you're doing and how you're eating because that is going to dictate what your kids are going to eat or not to eat. Yeah. Um, so if they're only eating strawberries, you know, think about what are you really bringing into the house and what are they trying? That's so true. And, I mean, the, the distance between a strawberry and a kiwi, very small. <laughs> and um, yeah. we just introduced kiwis to uh, our kids and they're like, what? Nirvana. They, they like- loved it. Oh, wow, look at that. Now, one of them had, you know, all the prickly hair on the outside of it all over his lips. But we had to teach him that. But um, How old are your children? uh, I have uh, from 10 up to 22. Okay, so they're a little older. And so that's a great time to start building those taste buds, especially before they go off to college and start eating all the... uh, the food in the cafeteria on the college campus. If they're used to eat, eating nutritious food, they're going to be looking for that. Yeah, and, and and they and they already they already do. In fact, when like when we go somewhere where there's a salad bar, you can see that they'll they'll pick and take their favorite items. Um, it, what are some other tricks that you use to make sure that uh, you're, you're able to eat the veggies and the fruits and and do it affordably? Well, you know what? It's, it's funny because people will say to me. You know, I always I have my five finger food guide, and I, I lump lump fruits and vegetables into one food group, and as many people do. And and so when I do seminars or I work with clients, they always say it should be more vegetables, right, than fruit. Well, sure, in a perfect world, you should be eating more vegetables than fruit. But very often, when I start working with people, they're not eating any of it. Right. <laughs> not eating any vegetables. They're not eating any fruit. So if I can get them to eat the fruit first and then we can work on the vegetables, that's fine too. You know, it's just getting them into that produce aisle and getting them to look at different things just as your family did with, with the kiwi. Walk down the produce aisle. Talk to the people who are working in the produce aisle. Ask them what just came in or, you know, what is this? I remember one time looking for spaghetti squash years mm. ago, the first yeah. time I was going to eat it. And I said to the produce manager, I said, what does it look like? <laughs> I didn't know. And um, you only have to ask once. After yeah. that, you know. And you, you really only need two or three recipes uh, for, you know, for banana squash to make it a major part of your life, really. Right, right. Like I didn't know you could use it as pasta and all of a sudden spaghetti squash could be pasta? Wow. Spaghetti squash could be pasta or if you don't want it to be all your pasta, mix it with pasta. That's so that great. you're not eating all of the pasta, you know. Or, um, you know, there's so many things you can do if you just take a step back. And first, ask other people, Google it, read about it. But take a step back and say, what is working for me? Because in, in my article here, and I truly, truly believe this, and I'm going to read it just as I wrote it, your eating affects everything from your health to your level of success. What you eat, what you choose to eat can dictate moods, relationships, and lifestyle. Hmm. And that is so true. And it may not, you may not see it in the day, but you will see it as the months and the years go on. You know, if, if, if you're in a profession um, and you're moving forward in your profession and as the years go on and you're not eating well and you're not looking healthy and you're putting weight on and you're getting slower and your brain is not as sharp as it once was because you're feeding it a lot of sugar, when the promotions roll around, you're not going to be a candidate. So true. It's you know, so true. And they're not going to tell you that. Right. But you're not going to be a candidate. So that's going to hit you in the pocket as well. No, yeah. I mean, that's the point you make in the article is you're going to be hit in the pocket 
a variety of ways. It's not just at the store, but it's it might be in your job and your lack of promotion. But if you eat healthier foods and they're more nourishing for you, you'll eat less. You'll absolutely eat less because your body doesn't need as much. When you're eating foods that is giving, you know, your body will crave what it needs. But if you're giving it all the wrong food, that's the message you're getting from it now. And it wants to keep having it So because it's still looking for the nutrients it needs. And it's not getting it. So you want to keep eating and keep eating. So the food that you're buying that's not nourishing, you're eating more of. But when you nourish your food, your, your body with good protein and good produce and, and healthy fats, you don't need to eat as much. And I, is- I, guess, I was just going to say, um, I, I guess in the end, too, if you're being nourished and you're healthier, um, you'll have the energy to go exercise, the energy to, to be more active, less lethargic, maybe a little more color back in your face. Also, in the end, though, you'll be healthier. And if you're healthier, then other costs will go down, uh, insurance costs um, and other things. I mean, certain issues that we all deal with with health, heart issues, anxiety issues. I mean, a lot of these could just be based on our lifestyle and our sedentary lifestyle. Absolutely. So true. And, um, you know, I'm looking at my 60th birthday in July, and I am so, I know anything can happen tomorrow, I understand that, but I am so um, blessed, and, and of course I've worked at this, that I am facing 60 years old with no medication, mm. no ill health. But another one of my Huffington Posts you can read is, um, what did I title it? Eat for your heart's health. Mm. Eat for your heart's health. Heart's desire, or something like that. What's the saying? Eat for eat to your heart's desire. To your heart's desire. Yeah. I changed that for to eat for heart health, and it and I'm honest enough in there to talk about my husband's heart disease, and so you can't control anybody else. Yeah. You can only control yourself. You can be a, an example, but you can only control yourself. Yeah. You know. Um, so maybe somebody wants to go and read about that and see where that led. But, um, but you can also, I mean, in a family, we can also deeply influence each other. And it might just can. mean we need to dig a little deeper to make vegetables a little more interesting, find a different way to present them. I mean, I'm pretty sure if we put um, if we put uh, spaghetti squash inside of spaghetti and served it as pasta to our kids, most of them wouldn't notice it. And then those that did uh, would be fine with it. And all of a sudden... You're getting these servings in them, and and they're enjoying it. Right. One thing I noticed, too, my kids are in their 30s, but one thing I noticed, too, is don't try and trick them either. You know, spaghetti squash is orange, so it doesn't look like pasta so much. But you say, I made this. This is different. Let's try this, you know. You'll love it. Right. Yeah, and, and, you know, I know. Don't pass off mashed cauliflowers, mashed potatoes. You you tried a new recipe with cauliflower, and, and then they expect that taste. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's learning, isn't it? Well, Margaret, we appreciate your time and your insight on this. Again, everybody, go check out her website, margaretmarshallassociates.com. Wonderful resources there, as well as all of those Huffington Post uh, articles that you can read through. And, Margaret, we appreciate you. Thank you. It really is, when you think about it, folks, it's your life, right? And uh, we we got to do something. We, we You know, we can keep talking about your health. And there's a point where, where we really, we just, we need to just get healthy. Or not. You know, you can just die. Just die. No, we, we want to we do what we can. Take a break. We'll come back and uh, 
you know, talk about Petite and Proud Day, the day for those people under five foot four. We'll get to that. Also, give you uh, some of the latest research about uh, what percentage of Americans are actually living a healthy lifestyle. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Thought we'd do a little coach's corner here to uh, to help you uh, on an issue that you may run into just as you as you deal with people, right? So do you do you know somebody who you're talking with and you communicate with, but it seems like they don't emote, like they don't give you any feedback. You can't tell if they like you or hate you. Hmm. Other people, they might laugh at your jokes, they talk to you, they, you know, engage. But there are people out there that don't. And it, it might throw you off a bit because you might be wondering, well, um, what's wrong with me? So I wanted to give you some tips, some tools for how to communicate with those that maybe don't communicate at all. And uh, five basic steps as we as as you just are trying to deal with some maybe somebody at work maybe a friend maybe you know the guy that runs your board on your radio show stuff like that nobody has that problem <laughs> you don't have that problem here's the deal five steps first key notice start noticing the difference the mere fact that you notice that they don't laugh that they don't have facial expressions that they don't show you know emotion Notice it. Don't react to it. Don't get mad about it. Just recognize the difference. And the problem with us as humans is we're so quick to react to what's going on that we don't we don't actually even recognize it and just let it be what it is. The the mere fact that you notice a difference is important. If you can think of somebody out there that is a little harder to communicate with because of just how they how their their affect is, their facial expression, their response, their emotion to what's going on, or their lack of emotion. A lot of us need people to react to in our conversations, and so it's harder to, to deal with people like this. But if I could just get you to recognize the difference, the mere fact you're recognizing it is is important. There are reasons why people don't show as much affect or, or um, emotion when you're talking to them. I mean, there's physiological issues, right? Medical issues, Parkinson's disease, strokes. There could be past traumas. Maybe they've had a car accident in the past. Maybe there's been nerve damage. There might be psychological disorders. There may have been medical procedures that have gone awry. Maybe too much Botox, for example. Faceless. And there's a lot of reasons why you may not see certain expression. Or it could be psychological, just how they were raised. They weren't raised in a family that talked and where you reacted and everyone was emoting. I mean, imagine being a child that's just left alone all day. And you may not, they may not have ever learned that that's just what we do. So, but the key is don't react to what's going on with these people. Don't just avoid them. Don't immediately go anywhere with it, but recognize that this is different. This person's different. Next, don't take it personally. Seriously, I, so I do these speeches all the time and at least every week, I'll be in front of a bunch of people um, speaking, and 
we I'll tell jokes and embarrassing stories and I'll talk about things and people will laugh, right? And others won't. And there's some people that will never laugh no matter what you do. Like they will never laugh. And at first I was like, what is this guy's deal? This guy just never laughs. And in fact, after my speeches, my wife will come up and say, holy cow, that one guy never laughed ever once. And um, I started realizing that it's not my fault. I mean, my job's not to make them laugh, but don't personalize it. Don't make it about you. It's not a reflection of you, right? It's not, it's not about you. This is about them. Some people, for whatever reason, aren't going to communicate through their facial expressions. They're not going to smile. They're not going to nod their head to, you know, egg you on to keep talking. They're just not going to do it. Others will do it naturally. Also, instead of don't just take take it personally, make sure you also don't demonize them, that you don't dehumanize them. These are still good people, right? And as a good person, they're just trying to get through the day. They just came to see you speak. And interestingly, they're there and they didn't walk out. So they're probably honoring you their way. Don't dehumanize them. Don't call them a name. Don't, you know, oh, that grumpy old curmudgeon on the front row. The reality is they're just probably doing the best they can. Again, because if you don't know what's causing this, you don't know if they were a child that never had a chance to connect and grow up and learn social skills of of emoting and conversation and facial expression. You didn't you don't know how they were impacted. So be careful that you're you keep them as humans in your mind, good, honorable, decent people. Then um, what you can also do is simply adjust your approach. With certain people that you need to communicate with, it might be better to make sure if you're wondering if they even know what you're talking about because they never act like it in a meeting, you might want to text them or email them personally. Have a phone call, a follow-up phone call. Think about every phone call you're on, you're not getting visual or facial feedback. So you might notice that they do it more on the phone than they do it you know, face-to-face. So change your approach. Instead of waiting for everyone else to be different, you change. Oh, well, why do I always have to change? Well, you don't. You could also just complain about it the rest of your life. It won't work. And then one way to follow up is to talk to them. Many times I'll have somebody that was never smiling, never interacting, never seemingly engaged in a speech, and they'll come up and they'll thank me for the speech. That was wonderful. That was great. And you're like, are you kidding me? You didn't even pay attention. Shake their hand. Ask a question. I'd even be very direct. You know what? Ah, I really, I, I really want to know what you thought about how that went. And ask them a direct question that they have to verbally speak out. It's powerful, folks. Communication. It works with everyone. Even those that don't emote, you can still understand better. But the responsibility is on you. That's kind of going to be the case for all of us. It's always on the one that knows what they're doing. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. 
So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour and they have too many thoughts coming in. And it, with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and, you know, text messaging, emails, they've got a lot of thoughts. And so I wanted to help you out today and help you figure out how to, to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Because – and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious and some are conscious. Some of you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some thoughts you don't even think about. Ninety percent of thought you don't even think about. How much – and how much of this has to do with social media TV watching, reading, yeah. reading. Interesting, right? And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media and your your brain at one level is still processing it. And then you might actually bring it into the, the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head and I found that there's uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts that I bring up. I mean I'm sure if I talk to a neuropsychiatrist, we'd find seven. But I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I, I have some some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys, by the way, to thinking is thoughts are they stay in your head because of energy, right? It takes energy to keep a thought, to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having seventy thousand thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head. And to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us, right? Uh, the thought about scheduling, your appointment. They're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed. Uh, appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't, they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important, like don't forget to pick up your kids. Don't forget to unplug the iron. All of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything. No, but see, see, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. <laughs> I'm going to get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy to tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar. That energy would help eliminate the thoughts. So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my reports due tomorrow? And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. 
But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so, maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon, and that occupies energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, and that, I mean, that you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you at all at one time, yeah. how do you prioritize and say, let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it'll go away? Well, I might do it this when you had the thought, right? Like if all of a sudden I'm, I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say, let me go check on that. I would say, right, let me check. And I check right now because I'm doing it now. So I don't, otherwise I just delay it and I create 15 more thoughts of it. Do it now. If I have a prompting that I really ought to call so-and-so, I would either schedule a call to so-and-so or I might not call him. I might text him and I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. How are you doing? I just check in. Now, that will create issues. I get that. But you're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads. Or, you know, the thought, I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done, band-aid off, rip it out. But if it's a if it's a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line. And then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to, uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're going to that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out. But I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to. But I, if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes. And they inspire me. And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes They're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. There are a few tricks uh, to emotional management that I think can help you take control of this fight or flight part of your brain. The fight or flight part of your brain, remember, is it's there to protect you. But as we learned, the protection is just as much for your physiology, your body, as it is for your psychology or your identity. So our body, our, our fight or flight instincts will kick in just as strong and just as aggressively 
for the need to protect, you know, don't make fun of my high school as it will for, um, you know, I'm going to kill you. It's they're just they're threats. And it's it's not like the body can always distinguish, especially because the amygdala is so wired to fight or flight instantly. So some rules that we teach in my program, um, again, and, and uh, Dr. Kaplan hit it perfectly. One of them is just to start noticing your thinking. The more aware you are and the more aware we all become of our own thinking and how we react to certain events, how we see certain things, the more abilities we have to handle these events. Again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that I have issues, but as soon as I know that, boy, I'm really sensitive to certain things. For example, I know a bigger trigger for me is um, is more when my kids, like, question my authority. And when they question my authority, that's more likely to set me off than um, – or my ex- my experience than almost anything else they can do. They can call me a name. They can say whatever they want. But when, you know, when I say something like, you know what, okay, time for bed. You guys got to go to bed. And they're like, well, mom said we didn't have to. Boy, what has your mom got to do with this? And off we go. So what triggers you? We want to start to identify what the triggers are. And and generally, I, I've found that we tend to be triggered by any time we question if we're capable if you're questioning my capability, if you're questioning if I'm loved, if I, if I feel what you're doing is attacking me in a way that I feel unlovable, or when I feel unsafe, those tend to be the three biggest triggers I found. Um, lack of safety, lack of capability, like I'm just not cutting it anymore, or lack of lovability. So think about it. What triggers you to, you know, to go off? What What's the thing that most pushes you to just walk out of a discussion with your wife? Is it that every time she brings something up, do you feel like she's questioning if you're capable, if you're good enough to do this kind of stuff? Do you question if you're loved? Or do you question, um, you know, if you're going to be safe physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially? So once you start to become more aware, then you can start to understand how your triggers go off and what works for you. I mean, I found a lot of times... Just breathing, taking a deep breath helps a lot to be able to manage my reactions. Um, Another thing I found is a great tool is anything you can do to get into your what I call your higher brain. Um, One fast way to do that, by the way, is math. If, If you would take a million and count down from one million by 17s, I'm going to bet you won't fight about whatever your wife is bringing up. Right. And one reason is because if you have to go into your high brain and start making sense of something that's more complicated, then all of a sudden you don't have time to just get into your low brain and fight or flight. One of the ways I do this, and there's a really interesting um, parallel to it in the court system. If you notice in courts, they have a lot of rules and a lot of uh, ways that you approach the bench, the ways that you, you're allowed to say what you want to say in the courtroom. They have so much structure and so many rules to, to uh, obey and so much just protocol for how you handle the courtroom that I think the protocol itself keeps the people from fighting or flighting and reacting to each other. I mean, think about it. You have people in a court system that truly do not like each other. They hate each other, but there's so much process that that is demanding their brain power 
Otherwise, they lose the case, right? They, they'll they get the judge mad at them. So they follow the protocol. And when you follow the protocol, the process is nice and slow and methodical. And the protocol keeps you from reacting, overly reacting to each other in the courtroom. I found the same is true in our in our relationship. So we teach our couples when we're teaching them how to have a have to have a serious conversation that might normally set us off that there's some protocols we're going to follow. We're going to learn to recognize each other emotion each other's emotions. I call this getting real. Recognize the emotion, explore the story behind it. Behind every emotion there's a story. And if I can let the person that's I'm that we're I'm struggling with that I'm arguing with share their story without me jumping in and without me reacting to their emotion, and I explore their story, I'll be able to hear where they're really starving. Deep down in the story, you'll hear where they're really being affected. You'll hear if they have a lovable issue, if they have a capable issue, if they have a safety issue. I call that stuff the starve stuff. So we recognize their emotion. You seem upset. We explore the story. Tell me what's going on. And I attend to what they're saying. I really listen to where they're hurting. And then before I do all of those three things before I try to ever lift the conversation. And to lift the conversation, I try to do what I call – it's a very simple rule that I call the 80-20 rule. I believe in every discussion you have with another human being, 80% of what they're saying you agree with. I agree that the world is complicated today. I agree that, uh, you know, we didn't take care of America like we should have. I admit that uh, we, you know, I've been part of the problem. I accept. I I affirm. And you just, you go with them wherever they are, where you can go with them. And then you share your side. And I have a different side. And then you can tell your side. And I don't think that we should, you know, make everybody feel unsafe by saying certain things politically. Does that make sense? So we recognize emotion, we explore, we attend, and we lift conversations. They're skills, and they're skills you can learn. I'm teaching them every day, and you know what? You learn You learn to do it. This stuff works. Um, it, it's not a silver bullet, but it's a skill, and you can learn to do it, and the more you do it, the easier it gets, I think, for all of us. So great learnings, I think. Uh, that's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of emotions. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, spring is in full bloom, and summer's just around the corner. This means more sunshine, outdoor activities, and yes, you get to don the bathing suit. Yes. It also means many of us are getting in shape, engaging in healthier living, and enjoying the outdoors. But, uh, you know, it's it's not always easy. Even if you want to lose weight, if you want to get healthy, it's not always easy to know how to do it and and what's the what's the healthiest way to do it. So we decided to bring in a pro who can help us lose weight, you know, by using kind of our own method, our own our own gifts of metabolism and and other understandings to help us fight through uh, losing weight. Our guest is Claudia Norris. She's the author of Fire Up Your Metabolism for Lasting Weight Loss. And uh, she joins us now live from Gibraltar. Claudia, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. You bet. Great to have you. And we need your help because now I was always convinced that uh, this is how I learned it in my health class, that your metabolism is like the furnace of your body and you just need to throw fat in it and it will burn it. So (laughs) That's absolutely right. And actually, it's, you know, when we eat, is as important as what we're eating. Okay. And, and a lot of people don't realize that. And a few simple changes can actually make a big difference to, to our body shape. What, explain, though, maybe different than the furnace. So the metabolism, though, is just the burner, isn't it? It's the energy it's burner. The, yeah. yeah, that's right. It's the rate at which we burn our calories. Okay. And so... We can burn a variety of different kinds of calories, I guess. I mean, I guess calories are calories, but some of them are going to just burn through us faster, right? So we've got to get our timing right, like you were just saying. And then eventually, and I know you'll walk us through the steps to do all of this, but we also have to get the right thing to burn, right? I want my fat to burn in my body, not, not I guess, just the sugar I'm eating. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and you don't want to be and you know when people lose weight very dramatically as well they're 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 losing their muscle mass, and and we want to prevent that as well. So it, it's all about getting the metabolism to work for us and and doing it. And I loved how you um, said it at the beginning. You know, it's all about health. It's not about quick fixes. It's right. about doing things in a sustainable way. It's about lasting weight loss. And and the the metabolism that burner is going to it's going to work for us. We just have to know not to work against it. That's exactly right. And um, I'd love to explain a little bit more about that, and Do. also maybe discuss you know our sort of twenty four hour society and and um, and how we can modify when we're eating to to cope with our night shifts and you know whatever mm-hmm. kind of lifestyle we're leading. Talk about the lifestyle issue in your article in Huffington Post. You mentioned the fact that you know Japanese sumo wrestlers understand their metabolism and they actually work against it right they they yeah, eat a lot of they, food and then they go right to bed and they skip their breakfast and yeah so talk about how our 24-hour system might be impeding our health absolutely well um, to to read more about the Japanese sumo wrestlers um, dr. Mark Hyman has written about them in his book ultra metabolism and and as he says you know the the a young sumo wrestler is is just a scrawny lad, you know, right. and they, and they have to work very hard to to create to transform this scrawny lad into a sumo wrestler. And the way they do it is they get these boys up at five o'clock in the morning. They do several hours of intense activity. So they skip breakfast. They do several hours of intense activity, and then they eat, and they eat a very large meal. It's not unhealthy. It's things like noodles and prawns and chicken and miso, and, but they overeat because they're very hungry. Hmm. And then immediately after this very large meal, they sleep, hmm. um, and they have a siesta. And then later on in the day, they'll, they'll do some study and meditation, and then they'll, again, they'll have a very large meal and sleep. And and a lot of us are inadvertently sort of following this sumo wrestler pattern, you know. <laughs> so we might skip breakfast, for example, yeah. um, have lunch on the run, and then we're absolutely starving by the afternoon. And you know that's when we might reach for the chocolates and the, you know, the crisps and the not so healthy snacks. And and often it's when we unwind and relax in the evenings that we tend to eat the bulk of our food and then go to sleep. Mm. 
And we're not even sumo wrestlers. No. What's our excuse? I don't want to be either. Yeah. But it's interesting. We've kind of, we just find ourselves there. And then we get this idea in our head, it seems like, that, well, no, you need to diet. So you're almost not eating when you should be. And when you shouldn't be eating, you're eating. We're That's backwards. Right. We're a little bit backwards. And, and there's another great person in, in the States, uh, Mark David, the founder of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, and he talks a lot about this in his Slow Down Diet. Um, you know, it's all about learning about our metabolic rate and, and then following it. Um, I, I've worked with a lot of police officers. At one point, I had uh, 79 police officers on a three-month weight loss program. Wow. And, and because I run online weight loss programs, I work with a lot of shift workers. So I've recently worked, for example, with a lot of nurses. And um, shall I talk you through how, how to yeah, please around that? Yeah. Yeah. So imagine you were clocking on at 8 o'clock in the evening and finishing at 8, 8 o'clock in the morning. You're doing a 12-hour shift. So the ideal thing to do would be to have a good meal at about 6 o'clock in the evening before you go to work. And then at about 10 o'clock in the evening, have a really decent break. You know, so have you know, a, a nice salad with some chicken or have some soup with you know, lentils and beans. There's some, something really nourishing. And then try to let the digestive system rest over the night because I, so many shift workers and so many people, when we're eating against our metabolism, mm. we, you know, we can develop insulin resistance. Uh, we can develop IBS. It's very common to see IBS because our digestive system has its own circadian rhythm, its own rhythm of its own. Yeah. So if you are working through the night, it's, it's very important to try as much as you can to let your digestive system rest. Um, so then, say, at about 6 o'clock in the morning, you'd probably have a breakfast and then go home and sleep. Now, a lot of shift workers, they, they get home. Maybe they don't have the chance to have a break while they're on work, but they get home and they go to sleep and they skip the breakfast. And this is a mistake because you're not going to sleep for as long. Mm. You're going to wake up because you're hungry. And then, and then, yeah, so then you're tired, which is going to make you probably not exercise and be and, and more likely to make mistakes. And unhealthy choices. Yeah. When we're tired, we eat for energy. We just think, oh, I need some caffeine or I need some sugar. Mm. What does the – how do we know um, that our metabolism is kicking in? What, what are the signs that it's actually happening? Well, the way the scientists measure it is body temperature. But most of us aren't aren't really aware of you know changes slight minuscule changes in our body temperature. Um, you know another great way to increase your metabolic rate is to to um, exercise and to build up lean muscle. What does the lean muscle do? The lean muscle burns fat. <laughs> the more lean muscle we have in our body, the higher our metabolic rate. And it means we can be sitting watching some television in the evening and we're still, we're still burning. We're still burning our calories. Ooh, that's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. Because so really strength training is, is very helpful. Think of how many of more breathing. Cheetos you could eat, Claudia. <laughs> you could just keep eating. I, I'm not really a no. fan of Cheetos. Now. I know. Either am I. Um, okay, Claudia, let's take a break. When we come back, I want you to walk us through this, the average day now, starting a, you know, a regular day. If I get up in the morning, what could I do that would, you know, what's the proper way to kind of get through the day to maximize my metabolic rate? 
and also we need to be exercising too to get that lean muscle. So we'll talk about that Absolutely. as well. More Absolutely. with uh, with Claudia Norris from um, she's got a wonderful website, nutritioning uh, nutritioning oh, oh, happy, happyinbody.com. Oh, happyinbody.com. Sorry, I was going to go to your other Thanks. one. Happyinbody.com. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. We're working on your metabolism. Listen up, folks. A few tricks to uh, help us burn the fat we need. Stick with us. This is Matt Townsend Show. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, we are going to turn on your metabolism, fire it up, and who better to help us with that than Claudia Norris from the website happyinbody.com, improving uh, your relationship with food and body, and she's on the line with us from Gibraltar, no less, and is going to walk us through her uh, Huffington Post article about how to fire up your metabolism. Claudia, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. You bet. So, shall we start with how to? So, a typical day, how to yep. how to really fire up metabolism, and the first the first trick is, or the first secret, we've got to have breakfast. Okay, how so big of a breakfast? Just a just a couple pieces of toast. No, I would prefer a little bit of protein with that. So, you know, for example, some porridge with nuts and seeds, or an egg with some toast. You know, or maybe half an avocado mm. with. You know, on mashed up on some toast, something like that. So, so yes. And then basically the idea is to have had about 70% of your calories by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So, we, you know, so many of us don't eat enough during the day and then we, we overeat in the evening. Right. So it, it's about it, starting the day with breakfast is very important. Now, a lot of people don't have an appetite at breakfast. And so... A trick that I use is to ask people not to eat past 8 o'clock in the evening for three nights in a row because that often stops the appetite in the morning. Yeah. So if I just kind of, uh, you know, be done with dinner and then not eat again, I will wake up hungry. That's the idea. That's the idea. I mean, obviously there are exceptions. For example, thyroid conditions. I'm sure, you know... People often don't have an appetite in the morning. But even if you're not that hungry, just to have like one oat cake with a bit of peanut butter, just start small and, and baby steps build up. Hmm. And you'll find you will start naturally waking up with an appetite. Now, I've heard people say that we need to, to eat about every two hours something. Is that true to keep the metabolism going or is that just a, an old wives tale? Um, I'd, I'd say it's really individual. So, for example, when I work with diabetic ladies, I'll in, uh, diabetic clients, I'll initially ask them to eat every two to three hours just to get their blood sugars on a more even keel. Um, but it, it's an individual thing. A lot of people, if they have a, a, a good breakfast, they're okay till lunch. But it, but by all means, if you're if you're hungry, you get peckish. Have a few nuts, have a few seeds, have something. Mm. And so um, we in, so, the, in the morning. So we start. We have a good breakfast. Let's say that's around you know, 7 a.m. or whatever, and then, um, and, then, and then wait and then, you know, maybe have some nuts somewhere in between if we're, if we're needing it. But then you're yeah. saying make lunch a bigger meal. Make lunch a bigger meal. And I know that's not always practical, but bring in, you know, when we're at work, but bring in leftovers from the night before. 
Um, so many people will just have something on the run. They might grab a sandwich or they might just have a bowl of soup, and there's not always protein in there. You know, um, so if, if you were going to have a bowl of soup, make sure it's got some chickpeas or beans or have um, a piece of toast with some chicken on, on the side. You know, just, just try and bulk it up a little bit more. Take the pressure off the evening because mm. um, we've got a lot more chance of burning our calories through the day rather than eating just before we go to bed. That's true, huh? Yeah, and it, yeah, and so if you could, if you have a bigger meal, you'll you'll have a better chance of burning that off, and then make sure you just have a you know a moderate dinner. Absolutely, and you see, actually, our metabolism is highest when the sun is highest in the sky. Really? So yeah, so so when we wake up, it, it um, you know it jumps a little, it peaks a, it peaks a bit your metabolism, but actually, having breakfast is like firing it up. And so many people say, well, you know, I have breakfast and then I'm hungry. You know, if I have breakfast, then I find that I'm hungry all through the morning. I say, well, that, you know, that actually that's fantastic because that shows that your metabolism is, is firing up and it's working. <laughs> you yeah. know, so we want that. And it's okay to have a snack if you need it. Um, and then what happens is the, meta, the metabolism slows down a little bit in the afternoon and typically, like siesta time, I'm sure you know some some of the listeners might experience a little bit of an afternoon slump. That happens, and it's okay to have a snack in the afternoon. And in fact, if you haven't had a snack around three o'clock, I really encourage to have a proper snack about five o'clock. You know, maybe an apple with apple slices with peanut butter on, or you know, some oat cakes with with nuts, that kind of thing, to take the pressure off the evening. Because otherwise, you know, after the commute home, you can get home, you can be absolutely starving. Mm. And that's when we overeat, when we're ravenous. So we really, it's almost like you're saying we, we don't, if we, if we need a snack, take a snack. But mm. we, we don't want to have these long periods with no food or we do become ravenous and then we overindulge. Exactly. Exactly. So really, we're eating and to just keep you know, us happy so as not to create this need to overindulge. That's right. That's right. And also to get the balance of the macronutrients. So I'm talking about the protein, carbs, fats. That's why I keep mentioning protein, because if, if it gets to the afternoon and we haven't had any protein or possibly even the good fats, our, our brain is going to tell us that we're hungry. It's not able to discern, you know, um, Matt, you haven't had enough protein yet today. Right. And what does that do to – I mean because a lot of people, again, thinking the best diet is not eating. Um, what does it do to our metabolism when we do go these long periods of time without protein or food? It, I mean it absolutely slows the metabolism down. And then it, it you're not burning. The metabolic rate. I mean, people may, of course, lose weight. Yeah. But what happens is you lose your muscle mass and you slow your metabolism down so that when you do go back to eating normally – you put the weight back on and some, you know, always with interest. Yeah. So, so that's not advisable. Um, I'd, I'd love to share with you some tips for eating around building muscle, building lean muscle, if that's... Yeah, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, okay, so I work with professional golfers in Spain, and they're always looking to, you know, in, increase their strength training and obviously build their lean muscle and improve their performance and then reduce recovery time. And what, what I do with them is four hours before training or before tea off or whatever it is, it's a good idea to have some carbs in your system. So it would be, for example, some oats. If, if, you, know, if you were exercising at 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, at 7 o'clock in the morning, have a bowl of porridge. Um, 
because we want the carbs to get the glycogen into the muscles. Mm. Uh, if you're exercising early in the morning, just don't worry. Obviously, please don't get up four hours before. <laughs> but the night before, have some carbs. So you might have some wild rice or quinoa or even a bowl of pasta, whatever suits your digestive system. And then half an hour before your exercise, a little bit of um, sweet, high, you know, watery fruit. So, for example, watermelon is brilliant um, or an orange is good just to give you a little burst of Sort of sugar, sugar energy, and um, also to make sure you're hydrating. So keep hydrating before the exercise. And then during your exercise, you obviously keep hydrating. Think about electrolytes possibly, depending on how much you're sweating. So I just would put a pinch of salt into your water. And then after exercise, after you've been breaking down all the lean, or when you're strength training, you're, break, you're tearing your muscle fibers. And in order for it to regrow, it, it layers up like if you were flicking through a magazine. It's very, very fine layers. And for that to, to grow and strengthen, you need to have the branched-chain amino acids, the proteins in your bloodstream that are available. And they have to be available within 40 minutes of finishing your workout. Mm. Otherwise, the muscle doesn't re- regenerate or, or repair in the same way. Oh, is that why people so, eat, drink these protein shakes? Yes, that's exactly right. After why. a workout. But you, that's right. But I just, I'm so suspicious of, you know, yeah. there's so many protein shakes with so many chemicals mm-hmm. and, you know, soy-based, which doesn't necessarily agree with people or whey. Um, so there are some fantastic raw vegan ones which are based on, you know, pea protein or cranberry protein. And, and I always advocate those or even hemp seeds, you know. Yeah. But it's, it's a good idea to have it as a powder form. So it's easy for the digestive system. It doesn't have to spend time breaking it all down. Hmm. This is, I mean, it, it, it's again complicated. But then, when you know the science of it, it's it's pretty basic. You, you need to yeah, carb is. load, a little sugar push, get through it, protein pack. <laughs> you and know, hydrate. Don't forget the and hydrate, hydrate and hydrate all the way through. Yeah, and then and then of course um, for the recovery, we're still maybe I'd say to my golfers to have a steak that night. If, nah, if they've got through the competition and they're playing again the next day, they need to. They've got the night to recover. That's it because they're uh, another tournament the next day. Right. So and and so to have some protein for the recovery and carbs at night as well, like rice or you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, no, I love it, and I think um, I, I guess the key to this is. Learning your own body, learning your own uh, your own metabolism and, and, and what you need. You just got to start paying attention, I guess, to ourselves. Exactly. Honoring it. Honoring it. And, and so often our bodies are trying to tell us and we're not listening. You know, it's, when so many of my ladies, you know, they get heartburn at night and it's, it's so easy to, you know, when we, when we change the way they're eating, just not even so much what, but the when, it makes such a difference, not going to sleep with a full belly. Yeah. I mean, so, so I guess, I mean, we want to have it earlier, and then yeah. you're saying no food, really. You shouldn't be eating after what time, did you suggest? You know, that's a tricky one. I, I, the, when you look at the Dutch, the Dutch population, they, they eat dinner between 5 and 6 in the evening, and they don't eat anything until breakfast the next day. So they're they're doing 12-hour fasts, that's mm. compl- you know, at least 12-hour fasts every day. And that's, that's normal. I mean, that's, that's extremely healthy. Whereas I have other clients, there's no way they would be able to do that. We'd maybe think about working towards it. But I might let them have, you know, an oat cake uh, at 9 or something 
so that they can sleep through because sometimes when the blood sugar is so disrupted it's very difficult for them to sleep through the night and they, they're worried about being hungry so it's really like you said working with your own body understanding your body and working at your body's pace yeah i um i love just the the simplicity of it really i mean it seems complicated mm-hmm. but and maybe sometimes people overcomplicate it just to have an advantage but it's it's pretty basic stuff kind of it is. know yourself it is. listen to yourself yes what would you say as we, we wrap are our very own nutritionist yeah we? i mean your body knows right and it will tell you mm. what would you say is the one thing the one thing that we if we would just focus on this one thing it would automatically improve our metabolism our sense of you know improving our relationship with our body wow that's a good question Hmm. I think I think it's listening to the body is, is the most important thing. Watching for the symptoms, um, re- reconnecting with our appetite, because a lot of us we we eat when we're not really hungry and we've become disconnected from our appetite. Um, so I, I would say that really, and, and hydrating, good. hydrating through the day, because so often, again, we think we're hungry when actually it's the thirst mechanism. We're, we're actually just thirsty. Yeah, that's true. Well, we appreciate it. Claudia Norris. Thank you for your work, and again, the website happyinbody.com, where you can go look at her online programs to uh, to lose weight there as well. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you so much, Matt. You bet. Take care there in Gibraltar, and. Um, Keep it up, uh, all of us, really. What did you learn? What's one thing you learned from Claudia that we need to to implement, that you need to implement? Is it the exercise? Is it, you know, loading up with a few carbs before you exercise? Hydrating? How about just reconnecting to your your appetite? How many times do you eat without being hungry and eat too much? then you feel sick or even just managing the times you eat all good news all opportunities for each of us Um, anyway think about what you need to work on we'll take a break when we come back we'll be wrapping up this first hour doing a little coach's corner stick with us folks this is the Matt Townsend show helping you live longer and love stronger we'll be right back hey in a new study in the journal uh, Mayo Clinic Proceedings A group of researchers set out to answer this very question. They looked at the data from a nationally representative sample of 5,000 people to see how many hit four healthy targets. Okay? Four healthy targets. The four targets were these. Exercise. They they gave everybody an activity tracker and had them um, uh, show that they're exercising at either a moderate or a higher intensity for at least 150 minutes per week. Number one. Number two, diet. Do you adhere to the federal government's definition of a good diet, which emphasizes uh, ample produce and limited saturated fats, sodium, and added sugar? Three, body composition. Would a body composition scanner show that you have body fat percentage between 5 and 20% if you're a male and 8 and 30% if you're a female? And the fourth criteria, smoking status. Could you pass a blood test proving that you don't smoke? Four things, exercising, 150 minutes, diet, a 
according to the uh, the federal government's definition of a good diet, body composition, 5 to 20% for male, 8 to 30% for female, and smoking status. Could you pass that test? Now, be honest. Guess what the numbers were? Only 2.7% of the 5,000 people they were studying could hit all four benchmarks. Less than 3% of the population could hit all four. Men score worse than women. They are less likely to eat well. Only 32% of men eat well compared to 44% of women. And uh, men score worse on abstaining from smoking. 63% of men abstain from smoking compared to 80% of women. The scientists also tested the subjects for uh, blood for markers that would indicate their risk for cardiovascular disease. And um, men or the more of the targets a person hits, the lower they are at risk. But not surprisingly, people already know that eating right and exercise will make them healthier. It's just making healthy choices. Oh, it's so hard. It's so, so hard. So um, how do you do it? Three percent of the population could meet those four criteria. Boom. It might be just a great place to start. That article is in menshealth.com. It might be worth looking at just four things. Quit the smoking, work on your body composition, diet, and exercise. Just four things. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. As our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal. Right. So if if a 19 to 24 year old person gets pregnant, historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man, marry the man that, you know, makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here. And then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So it's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden – yet you're pregnant, one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the, the, the educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What, what is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, 
you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian supported cultures and environments because you had a tight knit group maybe more around you. But in inner city, difficult, financially strained situations, it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if, if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work. Right. Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that, Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? This is the Matt Townsend Show. 